why don't we start with a, a little meditation? So I'll ask you to get comfortable. If you have anything in your lap, maybe you'll want to take it out. You don't have to, but just get comfortable. Close your eyes. And I want to want you to think of sort of puttering around in your room or apartment or house. You're sort of going through uh, old possessions, possibly in an attic back home. And suddenly you run across some pictures that you did as a child. And as you look at them, you smile at your efforts, which seemed so serious then, perhaps even as a very young child, you were anxious as to whether or not people would think these were good. What would mommy, what would daddy think? But now you just look at them and you smile. You see that you did the best you could. And with this same point of view, I would like for you to play another game. Think now about this life of yours and all that you're going through and all that you've been through as the dream of a child. So it is your dream, the dream of a child, but now you're going to look at it the same way you looked at those pictures that you found. You're going to smile from the vantage point of what you will become, of the goodness and the tenderness and the peace and the holiness that will be yours. And from that vantage point, you look now at this little life your place in it, this particular time in it, very much like you would as if you were sitting beside a child that was sleeping and you could see its dream. So look at all the people in the dream, all the events, and see if you can't smile now and see that it's not quite so important as it seemed back then, that you did the best you could, that the lessons were gentle and good, that your way home was always assured, that there never was anything to worry about. And now for the third step, with your eyes closed. Do you see how all the people in this dream, all the figures, are just a division of your mind, just as they were last night when you were asleep. As you slept last night, your thoughts divided themselves into people, this personality and that personality. But do you see that there was just one self behind all the people, all the figures, Please, for a moment, not be afraid of that concept. And now, as you look in gentleness, 
and gentle laughter even at this dream, this little life of yours. Make an effort now to wake to your one self, the self that unites all the figures, the single love, the single mind, the single will, the single purpose, the single heart behind all the figures. And so say to yourself gently, I am one self. And I wake now in one self. Just relax and see if you can approach this one brilliant, all-encompassing, completely satisfied, totally forgiving nature that is yours. Sink deeply into it. Let it pour throughout you. Lose all boundaries, all opinions, and become what you are for one holy second. I've recently taken to wearing the suit when I do a, a marriage ceremony because it is indeed a celebration. And I, so, and I would like to talk to you this morning about marriage. Now, I know that a number of you feel excluded. <laughs> but there isn't anything that, that I'll say that you can't apply to whatever your primary relationship is. We've spoken of this before. If you need to take just a moment now and close your eyes and think of what your primary relationship might be, it could be your boss, it could be a relative, it could be a pet that you feel extremely close to. I saw someone go through very deep grief recently uh, because she lost her dog. And this is not at all uncommon. Your primary relationship is simply the place where you will first recognize that you are one self. The place where you will see that you wish no separate interests. That you wish no personality apart from life. And that you are indeed one with this which is life. And it makes no difference whether or not you call this your spouse or someone that you see very seldom but think of often. And so everything I will say applies to a relationship of that sort. If you are living with someone, a roommate or a spouse or a child, an elderly relative, then it would be very good to apply this to that relationship. Because if you are living with someone and you are not at peace with the person you are living with, it is virtually impossible for you to make any progress. So there is where your work must begin. To heal the world, 
we must first heal the, the small world in which we dwell, the house, the room. And then the healing extends to your job, to your friends, and outward. But you must begin, and you must begin in the narrowest possible circle that you can conscribe uh, around you. You must begin where the world touches your heart most often and let the healing begin in that place. At this uh, marriage service, uh, unlike the last one I reported to you, I did not have my fly open. You'll be glad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as usual, I did. <laughs> I checked very carefully. I can tell you. <laughs> uh, as usual, I did have trouble with uh, with names, and I always do this. I I don't believe I've told you. Uh, I asked Gail's permission <laughs> if I could tell this. I actually forgot Gail's name in the reception line of our marriage. <laughs> Uh, we'll be speaking of uh, love and honesty this morning, and I want you to know that I did not turn to the person coming down and say, I've forgotten her name. This is not honesty. This is a form of ego honesty, but I just winged it. <laughs> We'd only known each other three weeks. Um, <laughs> Well, there's no excuse. I can't excuse. <laughs> it's always been interesting to me how much people love weddings. It's almost universal. Um, the um, bride and groom-to-be and I took a little walk just before the service, and there were some children out riding uh, bicycles. And they, of course, knew that there was going to be a wedding in the block. And so uh, they said that they wanted to come, but first of all, they wanted to congratulate them. And uh, so they came. There was a dog there with a wonderful collar that had been made all out of uh, yellow string. It seemed to like the, uh, uh, the service. Uh, people cry with happiness at weddings. And it's not difficult to understand why this happens. We feel within us a very deep yearning to recognize the truth that we are one self. And it's interesting that even the words of the very old wedding services incorporate this idea of becoming one person, of putting the other person's happiness first, of honoring them, of loving them, of cherishing them. And this is, of course, enough to make anyone weep that two people would attempt this because we long for this so deeply ourselves. We really do not like all this separateness and being set apart and specialness that we try to build upon. Those of you who come here have already begun to see the sorrow in this particular approach to life. It's very lonely, it's desperate, 
and it goes against our very nature to think that we all always must be contrasting ourselves in our conversation, in our appearance. Always we must be distinguishing ourselves from everyone and setting ourselves apart. Where's the love in that? Where's the peace in that? And then we end, of course, our life with this loneliness, possibly even our spouse having left before us. And we die in this way, thinking, of course, that that was all there was to it. And it's so useless. And so, of course, we would, we would weep with happiness at a wedding because here is the symbol of what we know strongly and deeply that every person on this earth is our brother and our sister, that we know them well, that we want nothing more than to put our arms around them and hang our head on their shoulder and weep tears of welcome and forgiveness. What I thought I would do this morning is take the vows of the dispensable church line by line and show you how they apply to marriage. I no longer marry just anyone uh, who comes to me. There have been a lot of firsts that I've told you about. There was the first wedding service that I did when I was not a minister. And we and then there was that was in a teepee and uh, <laughs> we we've done various things here. But I don't think I actually told you of uh, the legally the first wedding that I did. Because <laughs> I was somewhat embarrassed by it. A woman from Texas, so she had to be good at heart, I knew that. A woman from Texas called me on the phone and said, I'm in town, would you marry us? I didn't know her from Adam. We're supposed to know Adam, aren't we? Uh, but I didn't, know, I didn't know her from Eve, I guess would be the way to say it. Um, and uh, I had just gotten my credentials <laughs> as, a, as a minister. Uh, and so I was eager it's just like learning karate, you know. <laughs> Where are they? Where are they? <laughs> uh, so, um, oh, sure I will. Where should we do it? And uh, so they say, well, we want to have done it uh, at sunset. I should have known that. <laughs> at sunset. And uh, uh, so I called up some friend and said, could we borrow your patio? And we, um, they were divorced a week later. <laughs> so that, that, that woke me up to, that I should not treat this uh, in, in, in that sort of cavalier manner. Um, and so now I marry people that I have a real sense of their relationship. People that uh, possibly Gail and I have counseled people that I feel will come to us if they need help, if they want help afterwards, they'll know we're available. Uh, it isn't that that I wish to put people together forever. That's not a happy concept to lay on, uh, on a relationship, because if it does not work out that way, and then of course the people must assume they've made a mistake, and how silly that is. But I want 
the feeling that they are definitely trying, that they indeed wish to walk home together, and that even though this attempt may not work out, they're making it in earnest. So the first line of the vows is, and this I know sounds a little new age-ish, I'm, I'm somewhat embarrassed by this first line, but I have not been able to find another way to word it so that it is, so that it gets to the point. What happens is that one person repeats the vows to the other person, line by line, so they would insert their first name. So I would say, for example, Gail, I promise to not question your needs. That's the first line. I promise to not question your needs. And that's the one that I find everyone has the most trouble understanding. There is no difficulty in understanding it, but there is a tremendous resistance to understanding it. <laughs> because we think there is some advantage in looking down on other people's needs especially other people's fears and what we think of as their weaknesses. But I can tell you, after 18 years of very hard work, and especially hard work the last few years, that you cannot imagine the joy that comes from meeting another person's needs as if they were your own. And so as a relationship like this progresses, you actually take on the other person's ego. This is often not understood. And many people who read A Course in Miracles, for example, think that the ego is something to be fought or dueled with, that some sort of slugging match is called for. And what you actually do in what A Course in Miracles calls a holy relationship is that you take on another ego. And so now you have two egos. And you are the Christ. You are the Holy Spirit. You are the higher mind. You are the deeper self. You are the love. You are the peace that encircles both. And you make no distinction. Can you see how quickly your personal ego would fade if you did that? If you had no personal interests, if you wished none, and you took the step of taking on someone else's interests as your own, someone else's needs, and you treated them as if, you, as if they were your own fears. The ego has no defense against this. It simply does not know what to do when you decide to love someone else as though they were you. Love your brother as yourself. There is no defense for that. And children often do this so naturally. And that's why we love to have children in the service and that's why, as I've told you before, most of our budget goes to getting the very best Sunday school teachers that we can. It's because teachers are such beautiful, uh, children are such beautiful teachers. 
uh, <clears throat> and they, they, they take on your needs. Uh, having seen me uh, climb the scales and, <laughs> and dive off of them, uh, many of you know that uh, uh, I love sweets. And it, as a matter of fact, it's my proclamation that we must have Dunkin' Donuts along with the health food stuff back there. <laughs> and so it was not entirely surprising that when John started hearing all this, have a nice day, that when he started saying that to me, he didn't say it that way. Daddy, have a sweet day. <laughs> No one told him to do that. <laughs> Have a sweet day. And then, of course, it's John who comes through, uh, I don't know how many people he asked to, to get back there if I'm counseling someone, to bring me half a chocolate donut <laughs> after the service every Sunday. He knows my need, and he meets it. <laughs> I know a couple that discovered something recently. The woman in this marriage loved to uh, chat. Uh, she had a need for friends on that level. And for her, because of her background, which is always the answer as to why we have these particular things, according to her background, it was necessary to, to have long talks with friends on the phone and to hang out every once in a while at their house and go out to lunch and stuff like that. This was a need. Her husband did not have that need, but he had the need of being respected in the work that he did. He, he, he felt that what he produced should be of consequence. And that if he worked well and he produced well, then he would receive the filling of this hole, this ache that we have within us. And so we have these little holes in our soul, these little aches. And we make mistakes in the beginning in trying to fill them. We try to fill them in the wrong way. And we can always see how someone else tries to fill their hole and we know that it's wrong. And the tendency is to go in and attack them for it. And this, of course, just drives them further in the, in the wrong direction. What we want to do, if we see that they've made their mind up, that this is the way they must fill this hole, is that we want to support them. We want to be their friend. We want to say, that's just fine. Do that. Because in that way, they will have the necessary ego peace, if I can use that term. It's not real peace, but it's sort of a... a it's, it's the ego in abeyance. It's the ego sitting there in a stupor. And that's what you want. The ego parked and eight sails to the wind, you see, on the side of the road. I'm using New Mexico imagery here, do you see? Um, because we often see this, don't we, on the side of the road. And so that's what we want. Someone parked on the side of the road, slumped over their steering wheel, but you know they're perfectly all right. <laughs> That's what you want your ego to do, you see. And it can't do that if it thinks that there's something very important that it's not getting. 
And so that's why you rush to your friend and make sure that they get it. Unless, of course, it is a need that you know will disturb their peace rather than making the acquisition or the accepting of peace more difficult. And so, of course, you do not give alcohol to an alcoholic or heroin to someone that shoots up or all that kind of silly stuff. But if you see that this is a perfectly innocent need, as most of our needs are, almost all of them are so innocent, and if you see the person has decided to fill it in this way, then you do not hesitate. You rush. And you say, let me help you fill this need in this way. Because you don't want their ego to be a problem. And so this couple that I was talking about, he saw that his wife was having to turn away from him and that she was lonely because of this need. And as she progressed on her spiritual path, and as she began to see that, that these long conversations on the phone and, and uh, the gossiping and the chit-chatting and so forth were not, were not satisfying her, and yet she still felt the need, she was feeling simply more and more lonely because she couldn't turn to him. And so what, she, what he decided to do was to start a campaign of chit-chatting. And on all occasions, he would try to think of things that he could talk to her about, little things that he wouldn't have thought of, of uh, speaking to her about before because they were beneath his great work that he had to do, his, his shining purpose in life. How could he talk about whether or not Zozobra was a good or bad idea or whether or not you should hang a moose head in the den? These were beneath him, you see. Or uh, what do you think the weather will be like in six years, you see? <clears throat> That's not the point. The point is that if we do not meet our friend's need, our primary relationships need, they simply have to turn to other places. And this, of course, creates a gap between us and them. And to his surprise, he found that this was very satisfying and very happy for him when he saw the reason for doing it and when he no longer looked down on her need. And then he noticed a curious thing, that she began praising him in front of others, whereas before she hadn't done that. And he realized, maybe without knowing it, she was beginning to fill his need. And wasn't this a gentle and kind thing to do? Now, Gail and I, um, I'll tell you one of the ways that we meet each other's needs. Um, I, I, no one knows. You see, the reason we look down on other people's fears is we can't figure out why they feel this way. And if there is no reason, of course you can't figure it out. All fear is irrational. We think that there are justified fears, and ours are justified, and everyone else's are not. But if you'll just look at your fears, 
you'll see that they're silly. Where did they come from? I have no fear of rattlesnakes because I grew up in Texas and we had rattlesnakes all over the place. You couldn't go out and empty the garbage without there being a rattlesnake out there when I would uh, visit my, uh, my relatives. There were rattlesnakes out there. I, of course, I knew a rattlesnake could kill you, but I didn't see people getting killed by them. Uh, but as I've told you before, I did not grow up uh, for some reason. I didn't come in contact with centipedes, and so I find myself more afraid of centipedes than of rattlesnakes. Does that make any sense? Of course not. Um, Gail uh, is afraid of, of mice, spiders, and dead things. <laughs> see, she, she has no rebuttal. She's sitting back there. I've got the mics now, do you see? <laughs> um, only, only dead mice. Only dead mice. So, in our household, Gail picks up uh, all the snakes that are not rattlers, <laughs> the ones that I don't know about, and the larger animals. She's less afraid of that, and she doesn't look down on my fear of that. And I pick up the little teeny things. And <laughs> And the dead things and the squashed things and stuff like that. The second line is, I promise to seek your peace. So the first one was, I promise to not question your needs. I promise to seek your peace. If we add peace, then we know whether or not to meet someone's literal request. Because what you wish to do is to enhance their peace. You are the bearer of peace to your friends, even though you may not realize it. It is to you they will look first for peace. If you see them as innocent, then they relax a little bit. On all occasions, no matter what they have done, see them as innocent. Because you wish to make peace more easy for them. There is a passage in A Course in Miracles, which like many passages... Uh, the ego loves to misinterpret. Uh, the ego misinterprets passages by translating them into behavior and making behavioral rules out of something that is said in the course, even though the course over and over again says that what it's saying has nothing to do with rules of behavior. It has to do with the set of the heart, a tenderness of the mind. It does not have to do with whether or not you should uh, drive on, well, of course you should drive on the right side of the road. Uh, we won't, I won't go into what it doesn't have to do with. Um, so there are a number of things that, uh, there's the statement, for example, I need do nothing. And the egos translate that into meaning you are to be physically inactive. Of course, it doesn't say that at all. There's a statement in there that you are merely reviewing what has already occurred, that the future has already happened. The ego interprets that as meaning, oh, well, there isn't anything I'm supposed to do. I don't need to work hard. And of course, it doesn't mean that. There's a passage in the Course that says, uh, if your brother makes an outrageous demand, do it. And the ego interprets that in this way. Do whatever another ego verbally asks you to do. 
Of course, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say to do what they verbally ask you to do, and it doesn't say to do what another ego asks you to do. It says to do what your brother asks you to do. Incidentally, uh, on page 205 and 206, and again on page 308, that last passage is discussed in detail. If you read the whole context, there's no way on earth you can translate into do what everybody tells you to do verbally. I can tell you we'd have no church if I were to do that kind of thing. But if you see that your function is peace, and if you use that as your criterion, will this add peace? Do I think this will add peace for me to say this thing to this person? They have asked me for money. Do I think it will, it will add to their peace for me to give them money? Then you will see what they are actually asking, which is what the Course makes so apparent. You give what they are actually asking. So this means you do not rush into a decision as to what someone is asking of you. If someone attacks you, the ego thinks that, you, that they are asking you to attack back. That's what you feel is called upon you for. That, that you are to attack whoever attacks you. And the Course says, no, if someone attacks you, they are asking for help. It's a cry for help if they attack you. But you wouldn't see that unless you paused an instant. And then you would see that this is not a request that you also get mad, although they seem to be asking you to get mad, don't they? Their very tone of voice, the buttons they're pushing. The incidences that they bring up all seem to be calculated, demanding outrageously that you get mad. But that's not what they're asking. They're crying for help. And so you do not rise to the bait. It is never necessary to rise to the ego's bait. Simply see what the ego's doing and realize that your brother is not an ego. And then be gentle, as gentle as you can be. Be kind. As kind as you're capable of at the moment. Also, the concept of peace is very helpful when the whole issue of honesty rises its ugly little head in a relationship. And this is something that is happening quite extensively, as you know, at this particular time in our history. There is a tremendous emphasis on ego honesty. I know a couple that were considering marriage. I don't know if they were considering it openly, but they were certainly considering it privately. And she made dinner for him and asked him, how did he like her Greek salad? And he said, it doesn't have enough feta cheese. And that was the end of that relationship. <laughs> ah, but he was honest, wasn't he? This was well into the relationship. This was not the first blush. This wasn't the falling in love stage. Do you remember the falling in love stage? Go back now and remember your first love. 
do you know how, do you realize how you can, <laughs> that bad, huh? <laughs> do you remember how you honestly agreed with everything that dropped out of her sweet candied lips? Every sentiment that he spoke was deep philosophy, and you rallied to his cause. In complete honesty, these, these ego preferences that we think are so sacred are, are like the changing wind. We have no fixed opinion on anything. Just look back and see what you used to think was a good painting. Look at how your, your, your taste in food has changed. Look at how you, yes, you, conform to the Santa Fe look. Even Brooke is wearing blue jeans from L.A. in the music industry. Now, was this arrived at honestly? And yet we must be honest, mustn't we? And so let's talk about the levels of honesty. Now, this can be very confusing unless you use peace as your sole criterion. You are the bringer of peace. You are the blesser. You are there to make the way easier. You are there to lay the palm leaves before your dear friend, your relative, who you can't understand, and they can't understand you, but you lay the palm leaves before them anyway. That is your function. That is your joy, and that's the way you awaken. So let's take this concept of honesty and see what true honesty is. You cannot honestly attack someone else because attack is highly conflicted and you cannot honestly be conflicted because you cannot say two things or 20 things or a hundred different voices in your head at once. If you are truly honest, you are blessing, you are helping, you are bringing a smile, you are removing a burden, even if the person doesn't accept your gift and cannot accept your gift at the moment, at least that's your intent. And so on this superficial level, can't you see that most of the time when people ask you, uh, how do you like it, meaning my dress or my new car or my dish or something, do not look at your ego preference. It means nothing. It's going to change in 10 days. Quickly say yes. Oh, I think you're wonderful is what you're saying, and that's what they're asking. This isn't dishonesty. <clears throat> this is a deeper form of honesty, to not get up and caught up in these petty little quibbles that we have with everybody. I'm talking on this superficial, social, interaction kind of thing that we always do. This isn't a rule. I'm not saying that this is always what we should do, because, of course, maybe you can't eat the food. Maybe you're going to throw up if you eat the food. I, it, maybe it's that extreme. So maybe you better tell them that. <laughs> but that's not because you're going to do it anyway, do you see? But that's not the case, is it? Almost all the time, that's not the case. They're just little innocent questions. Develop the habit of not even looking at what your ego stance is at the moment. You wish no ego. Go to the Christ in you and say the words that bless them, that make them happy. You don't have to go into long arguments as to why you love this. 
It was a simple question, and you give a simple answer. It's a, it's a really a great uh, Greek salad. That's all you say. Because I can tell you, if this guy had just fallen in love with her, it would have been a great Greek salad. He would have thought it was super. He wouldn't even notice the feta cheese content. I go into upper, upper Crust. There's a difference between the downtown Upper Crust. The downtown Upper Crust is real and true. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the spirit of Santa Fe. And then we've got the spurious upper crust that's out on Sirius Road. It's been polluted by McDonald's and, and Colonel Chicken signs and motel vacancies and all these things. You know this, don't you? Now, at the downtown upper crust pizza, they serve a Greek salad. And they serve a wonderful Thousand Island dressing. But I can't tell you what I have to go through to get the thousand island dressing put on the Greek salad. Although they ask, what dressing do you want on the salad? And I say, I want the thousand island. This is a Greek salad. <laughs> I say, I know I'm from Texas. go up a level. We're talking about honesty now. We're talking about, can you say this in peace? I tell you, you can say these little social things in peace. They're asking, am I wonderful? And you say, yes, you are wonderful. That's an effect. That's all that's going on that level. All right, now, there's one. let's go one step up. As many of you know, I've told this story. I'll tell the story again sometime. I'm not going to do it this morning. But as many of you know, many of you know Gail and I ran off to Oklahoma to get married. You couldn't get married that fast in Texas. And we snuck off, got married by Mr. and Mrs. Grimes in their pajamas. <clears throat> Durant, Oklahoma. They had to get the woman next door to, to uh, witness it at 3 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> she was barely awake. <clears throat> no one knew we were going to do this. We got back. Her parents didn't even know she was dating me. <laughs> thought she was dating somebody else. And so we went over to her parents' house, and uh, she was going to introduce me to them. This is back in the old days. I realize it's not that way. This is 18 years ago. You have to understand, I'm from another generation. <laughs> uh, no, I realize you don't take, take uh, your spouse to introduce your parents always now. But anyway, that was the way it was done back in Big D. So uh, she introduced me. She said... Uh, and we're thinking of getting married. <laughs> Jaws dropped perceptibly. It was quivering in hands and things like that. Uh, and so her dad began talking me out of it. Um, and I said, in quasi-honesty, uh, well, in a sense, we're already married. <laughs> well... <laughs> 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 he completely misunderstood that statement. <laughs> but I mean, they jumped out of their seats and they were making out wedding invitations before we got out of the door. I mean, it was that fast. Uh, oh, I see. Uh, <laughs> no. um, 
But it would not have been a good thing for us to tell them that we were already married. And so Gail and I actually went through a whole nother marriage ceremony. And they didn't find out about this until I published Notes on Love and Courage, which was many, many, many years later. They called up very angrily. What's this passage in here? What do you mean you're married in Oklahoma? So, um, <laughs> uh, they're really nice people. <laughs> uh, and uh, so they forgave us all that silly stuff. All right, now let's go up one more level. Um, there are a number of holy men in uh, Santa Fe, as you know, and uh, I, like you, have had the opportunity of meeting and getting to know uh, several of them, and um, it's very interesting for me to meet uh, a holy person, someone who has dedicated themselves wholly to God and has come a very long way, and you can tell these people because, as I've mentioned before, and as you've seen for yourself, how often they giggle and uh, how gentle they are and how seriously they do not take themselves. Uh, they're happy in the world. But it's interesting to me that even the holiest of the holy that I've met still do things that would ordinarily make a, a an ordinary person who's not that far along upset. And one of these holy people recently went to the wrong bank. I could have told them. They didn't ask me, of course. <laughs> holy people don't ask me which bank they should go to. Um, went to the wrong bank. Um, I'm certainly not going to mention the bank, but those of you who have lived here uh, for many, many years may have discovered there has happens to be one particular bank that seems to be a very sad, unhappy place. And people get their fittings hurt, and they get abused verbally and all kinds of things. I don't know what's going on there. I haven't tried to figure it out. But it's, it just seems to be universal, and it's been carried down through the years, even though the tellers have changed and all that. That's why these people that are in places like that are completely innocent. It's something that gets set up, and it's very difficult to break. I know someone recently that went to the wrong vet. There's a vet here in Santa Fe, and it, he seems to kill every dog that <laughs> comes with you know. But, of course, we don't say that to anybody. This is not our function, because we, of course, do the same thing. And we, we simply look and see, is this a happy place for me to buy gas? Is this a happy place and so forth? And we eventually realize, oh, I think it'd be better if I simply did business someplace else. We don't start a campaign against them because the people are innocent. And who knows what's causing it and how long it's been going on and what efforts possibly they're making to change that atmosphere. But this holy person went to the wrong bank. He, too, was abused uh, quite badly. Uh, and so, uh, and so, what happened was he, of course, decided to withdraw his account. All he did was simply tell them that he was withdrawing his account. But when the president of the bank called him, then he told the president of the bank why, because the president of the bank was asking why. 
Now, do you see how it would be more peaceful to tell someone who is asking you point blank, why have you left my establishment? It would be more peaceful to tell them, and it would be more peaceful to not tell the person that you are uh, handing the, uh, the, the letter of resignation or wherever you do at a bank, or the, whoever it is you're calling and telling them, well, please cancel my account. Do you see how that does not concern that clerk and it would not be peaceful for you to go into a long list of grievances with the person from whom you bought the clothes in the store and it isn't their fault that it came apart the shoulder or whatever the thing may be? Do you see how peace makes the rule? You make peace your only rule and then it makes the rule for you under the circumstances. Let's take it one level, level more. Someone asks you, what do you think of them? People ask you that. They ask you that at times in moments of extreme honesty. Honesty in the sense that they are looking inside for the first time. And maybe they're seeing things about them that they don't like. And this is a good thing because it is a calm and honest looking deep within them. And they see possibly how they've misused all their friends or whatever it is that they've done. And they turn to you and they ask you what you think of them. That question can go to your ego and you can give them an ego opinion. But do you see that the deepest form of honesty would be for you to pause a moment until you can see clearly the essence of this person and then tell them what you think of them. And tell them with true honesty and deep peace and great blessing. The last uh, part of the vows, there are eight lines to the vows and uh, the third line, the last one that I'll deal with this morning, is I promise to put your happiness first. So it's I promise to not question your needs, I promise to seek your peace, I promise to put your happiness first. Of course, once again, the, uh, the ego preferences. You see, somehow this is not supposed to apply to uh, where you go to eat and uh, whether or not you attend the opera and so forth. I promise to put your happiness first. Most people will agree with that until they start applying it. <laughs> until they bring it to the issue at hand, and then they're not going to apply it. I promise to put your happiness first. That's almost lovely, isn't it? It's almost a beautiful concept. You see, we have all the concepts that we need. One act of kindness, one single tiny act of forbearance, of gentleness, equals a thousand years of study of every kind of philosophy and religion that you want to get your hands on. It not only equals it, it surpasses it. So we know enough. We've studied the books. We know the systems. We've taken this system and that system. We've gone to this group and that group. 
but the time comes in which you wish to take one idea and apply it now. In this argument, in this issue, at this bad time in the relationship, at this tense moment, now put their happiness first. And you will make progress. Whereas all the study did nothing but fill your ego with concepts and ideas. But there was no love. And so there is no difference between Taco Bell and Paco Bell. There is no difference in the world. If they want to go to Taco Bell, go to Taco Bell. If they want to listen to Paco Bell, listen to Paco Bell. Or Zazobra. Or whatever it is. It's in putting the other person's happiness first that you begin to realize that yourself does not lie within a single life and a single body. And that is the only thing there is to learn, is that you are not a narrow cage decaying something or another. That you are grand and great and brilliant and loved of God and blessed of heaven and known by all the angels. And your destiny is pure light. And how are you going to realize that? By putting another person's happiness first now. Do it quickly. Don't consult your tired old preference. It is this gentle little occasional momentary blessing that blesses most deeply. It is this single act of kindness that's carried out this moment that takes us to heaven. And so I'm going to ask that we close the service, a service in this way. And that is that you close your eyes and you take whoever you think is your primary relationship right now. Whoever it is that you're living with, that would be the first one. If you're not living with anyone, the person that you, who's most on your mind in some way. And remind yourself of the truth that one act of kindness is greater than a thousand years of studying philosophies and systems because it comes from God because you cannot be kind without uniting with God you wish to be kind you cannot be kind without being yourself at least to a small degree you cannot be kind without putting aside your ego at least a little bit and so take this person now in your hands hold them there in your heart look at them for just a moment now this primary relationship for just a second, forget your anger, your irritation. Lay it aside for just a moment and ask yourself, what little things would make this person happy that I'm not doing? Little things that don't matter a bit. It's different than what makes you happy. Look at them now, straight at them. And say to yourself, I want to come home. I want to know my father 
I want to know the love of God, I will begin in a place that will make a difference. I will try to do something that will make this person happy. Not some grand gesture, some little something. I will be silent and think of one or two or three things that if you found that they had died this morning, you had wished you had done. Not necessarily telling them that you love them, but the simple, gentle, pre-peace-bringing thing. So as I'm quiet, think of one or two or three.